Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. Please remember to like this show on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, wherever you get those podcasts. Nico, Richard, and I had Tom Frank on the show today. Tom Frank is a third-year law student at Loyola Chicago. And he came on the show to share his knowledge with foreign policy. We talk about the recent summit in Vietnam between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. We discuss the Iran deal. We discuss Israel, etc., etc., etc. It was a great show. Tom was a great guest. And we were pleased to have him. So, without any further ado... Please give it up for the great and powerful Tom Frank. There's a reason I need friends. I can't be left alone with these thoughts. All right. <laughs> but should you be communicating them to other people? No, we'll cut this out. Okay. <laughs> well, I meant even me, because... Yes, I shouldn't be the only one to suffer like this. <laughs> All right, let's just kick off the show, shall we? Welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. I'm Richard Leibovitz. And I'm Nico Espina. And I'm Thomas Frank. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's uh, a pleasure to be here. It's uh, great to... Be in the illustrious abodes of Dialogue De Novo with uh, the heavy smell of McDonald's, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting to it. Mm-hmm. I'm a little offended that Nico didn't bring us any nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. All right, so Tom... No free handouts here. <laughs> we, we have a very loose idea of what we're going to be talking about today, but it's mostly centered around the fact that we disagree and that you're wrong about everything. Right, and I understand that you feel that way, (laughs) and I'm certainly not one to impeach your feelings, but you are both objectively incorrect, and uh, I'm happy to talk about that today, and you know, the thing that really prompted me to want to do this is the recent news that uh, Donald Trump made or didn't make with regard to North Korea and the uh, U.S. efforts to denuclearize the North Korean Peninsula. And so it was my hope today to uh, kind of talk about U.S. foreign policy and international relations generally, uh, where President Trump fits in there, and uh, kind of take us through an analysis then of what Donald Trump's approach was in North Korea, how it's different theoretically to the issue in Iran, and see what, uh, I guess, how Donald Trump kind of stacks up against what traditional foreign policy is and what this might mean for the future. I, yeah, I actually wanted to. You, what do you, you politically? What do you consider yourself? Liberal, progressive? What do you? I don't know what the if you use a label whatsoever. But generally, I would use the term progressive, not uh-huh. necessarily in the way that um, AOC up in New York necessarily uses gotcha. it. Um, when I think of myself as a progressive, I think of um, the Wisconsin idea that was founded by Robert M. La Follette, a great U.S. Uh, senator and a Wisconsin politician from the 1890s who ran for president in 1924 as a third-party candidate and was actually, by a total vote count, uh, one of the most uh, successful third-party candidates, I think only behind Ross Perot's 1992 run in terms of uh, the amount of the popular vote that he got and his ability to carry a swing state without um, 
being in the South. I was about to say, George, yeah, George notwithstanding Wallace. George Wallace <laughs> and his special place in U.S. History. political yeah. history. Um, okay, so I actually found this interesting because you you talked to us about how you had high hopes with the North Korea summit and negotiations, which, by the way, aren't necessarily done. They're not over, but I I am more a moderate conservative. Jake's crazy. Nico's uh, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm white. Finish the thought, please. <laughs> Nico, I'm not really. I haven't really gotten a feel for you yet, but we'll get there. All I know uh, about Nico is he's very deep into a Big Mac right now. Loving it, loving it. I knew there was going to be alcohol involved today, and I had to get something. in. Not McDonald's. Not a sponsor. Just a great product. Oh my god. So I found it interesting because I am actually on the opposite ends of you because I had little to no faith in Donald Trump being able to negotiate anything, and I was actually. I'm actually a little offended that he sat down with North Korea. <laughs> so I do find this dynamic fascinating, but by all means, continue. I really didn't think that we could find any more to disagree on, um, just as intelligent people. Um, and somehow Donald Trump can... Thank you intelligent. Thank you. I was talking to Richard. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! I like him already. <laughs> but in all seriousness, though, it, um, it just baffles the mind that we can't find literally anything to agree on which should make the later half of the show um you and i interesting there's there's fringe areas of general agreement i think and i just don't think we talk about them like we well we, yeah we, it's more fun to disagree right, which there's, there's is no also point. part of the problem in american politics right now anyway because that's what grabs the attention i hear you but i think with like people like us we're also we love debating and so you can use the word jackass. Yeah. Okay. We're both jackasses. <laughs> and, but like, I like you. And I think that there's something to the, of like, I like people who can swing as hard as I do back at me, which that's why I continue to have conversations with you in the first place. Anyway. Well, I All feel right. complimented. So and, after uh, we've kissed each other's ass, let's get back to North Korea. Yeah. Why don't, uh, Tom, if you could, why don't you just <coughs> explain for the listeners who may not be following the news too closely, what exactly went on last week with uh, Trump and North Korea? Sure. So as part of what's now been a two-step process for Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, um, you know, they met uh, last year, I believe, in Singapore with uh, their summit then. It might have been a year and a half ago, but regardless. Um, they I, think, met... I actually think it was last summer, so it was less. Yeah, yeah. perfect. That's yeah. right. And um, they met to discuss denuclearization. It was, um, on one hand applauded as Donald Trump kind of going for this new policy approach with regard to North Korea because no prior U.S. president had really given them the, um, I guess, quote, legitimate stage um, of meeting a U.S. president directly. And so they had that meeting in Singapore of all places, which itself is kind of symbolic as a meeting place between Eastern and Western history. Um, with its colonial past and modern powerhouses, a, a financial center in Southeast Asia. And more recently, they just met in Hanoi, Vietnam, which, of course, has its own symbolic value, mm. being that the Vietnam War obviously happened there. And now the Hanoi Hilton. I actually found it a little odd that they chose that as the meeting place. But yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that is what it is. But just it was kind of an example of how even though a past foe that had touted the merits of communism uh, for decades could turn basically U.S. economic ally in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, the kind of reconciliation process that's happened between Vietnam and the United States since the end of the war and 
the exchanges that occur between Vietnam and the United States with, um, you know, the, the veterans that go back and have these types of exchanges and visiting their old battlefields. And, um, you know, it's been politicized by folks like John McCain throughout the last couple of decades. And they basically picked this place to meet. And the goal was essentially at its surface to negotiate the next step of North Korean denuclearization. Obviously, North Korea, at least it's widely believed, currently has a stockpile of nuclear weapons. Um, they've successfully tested nuclear weapons in the past. And as of the last couple of years, they've been testing rockets, which some folks in the United States intelligence community believe are capable of reaching the West Coast carrying a nuclear warhead. So th there's a lot to unpack there, but th the first question that sprung up is, why do you think previous presidents of the United States did not want to entertain the idea of treating the North Korean leaders as their equals? It adds to the legitimacy of the North Korean regime, which is very authoritarian. It's kind of um, gulag politics, military politics. There's not really a political system so much as there is just the hardest dictatorship really imaginable where yeah. all of the power is centralized in <clears throat> Kim Jong-un and he uses the organs of the state, primarily the military and his intelligence services, to completely repress his people um, and destroy political opposition at all levels of society as viciously as really one can imagine. Um, there was an example of him, uh, Kim Jong-un, executing his uncle a few years back using an anti-aircraft weapon. So, I mean, it's almost borders on cartoonish villainy. Um, with regard to how brutal this regime has been. Yeah, I, I've always found it weird that our foreign policy operates that way. You said the uh, that they did it, it led to the legitimacy, but the reality is that's that's their leaders. This is, he's the third generation of the Kim family to lead North Korea. So at a certain point, if you're not, what are you trying to delegitimize? Because he is the leader of a people. Right. And so he is the leader of the people, so to speak. But the issue is the external belief that the people of North Korea would prefer not to live under a yeah, brutal right. dictatorship yeah. and that Kim Jong-un meeting the president of the United States face to face is an image that he can project back to his domestic audience and say, Probably look at does. all of the great things. Exactly. Yeah. It's a propaganda ploy. And the cynical portions of the left and right, perhaps correctly, um, viewed Donald Trump as meeting Kim Jong-un as kind of a, a propaganda piece of his own for his own domestic audience to show that he is a fundamental break from the past. And that's kind of one of the core tenets of his candidacy for president is that he would break with a lot of the traditional norms of um, presidents of both sides of the aisle. And this is something that he can point to as evidence of that. Yeah. Obama said he would do the same, but he ended up not doing it. And I think that that's because you can promise whatever you want on the campaign trail. The second you get into office, that's when they open up the here's how really screwed up things are binder. And I just think oh, Trump didn't care. And so there's a problem with me there. But anyway, what were you go back to? Well, yeah, and that's pretty much where we're at now is we've had this second meeting, which was unsuccessful for... Um, really a variety of reasons, and I would attribute them just broadly, generally, as Trump has flaws in his negotiating style and abilities, I think. 
Um, I think that his um, business acumen is very overblown from, I mean, you can just look at the course of his career. Um, I'm almost tempted to put that in quotes, but um, his career as a real estate investor turned casino owner turned USFL team owner and what he tried to do there and try and integrate the USFL with the NFL, which was a colossal failure, um, which ended up with a court ruling that um, the courts ruled that the NFL was, in fact, running an illegal trust back in the 1980s. Monopoly, yeah. Right, and they found in favor of Donald Trump and the USFL and awarded a grand total of $3 in damages, mm. which tanked the USFL <laughs> and yeah. should really say something about <laughs> Donald Trump's um, just abilities to foresee business opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that they that was on the uh, thirty for thirty. The who killed the USFL? I actually know the uh, person who directed that. But hold on one second. But just as like before, Donald Trump even became president. That's kind of what my background knowledge of Donald Trump was. Um, I mean, I followed the NFL a lot more closely when I was younger. But this was something that I mean, the breakup of the USFL, which was through Donald Trump's own strategic blunder. Uh, kind of led to this golden age in the NFL because you had all these players come from the USFL into the NFL um, and created the mechanism of free agency in the NFL mm-hmm. and also led to um, just a huge surge of talent in the league that was demonstrated throughout the entire 1990s. So everything that you've talked about is, if you ever want to read a pretty interesting book, is discussed a lot. Rick Wilson is a uh, Republican strategist. He wrote a book called he does not pull punches in the title. Everything Trump touches dies. <laughs> a Republican strategist gets real about the worst president ever. It's like it's like the craziest title at like greatest. You know, I don't know. But I mean, the man couldn't profitably run a casino. Full stop. <laughs> right. That's almost literally unheard of. His also also his idea to get into the casino business was to set up shop in Atlantic City. Vegas, Reno. Don't go to Atlantic City, but go, yeah. So I actually think that, in all irony, we're not going to find a lot of disagreement about Trump's approach to the Hanoi meeting last week uh, amongst the people sitting around this table. I mean, I am sort of in the camp of Richard where he should have never even made such a gesture towards Kim Jong-un. But I guess I want to expand a little bit on your interpretation of it was it right of him to take the meeting is it just does it come down to the fact that come down to the fact that he's just a bad he's bad at strategy but he should he was right to be there what, what do you think well i think that there was a fundamental flaw in what he was trying to even accomplish from the get go and i think that that stems from this delusion of grandiosity if i mean that's not even a word but he just has grandiose delusions about himself that you see come into play with his handling of the negotiation with north korea just generally and this is something that you can break down basically infinitely in terms of uh, trying to analyze what the u.s long-term goals in north korea are and those goals for the u.s policy towards north korea they don't fundamentally change with who's president, whether it's Trump or Obama or George W. Bush. I mean, the the game, so to speak, that's being played in North Korea is what it is. And so 
you basically have to figure out a way to break the stalemate that exists in the game of North Korean nuclearization. And the only way to go about doing that is to go and meet. And you saw that play out basically with the Obama administration coming to terms with Iran and the Iranian nuclear deal, which I think is a good blueprint that we can talk about for how to denuclearize North Korea in the long term. But I mean, to, to use an analogy for what Donald Trump tried to do, um, I mean, in terms of what the actual negotiations were, in terms of what's been publicly reported, is that Donald Trump showed up and offered if North Korea completely disbands its nuclear program entirely, that the United States would end sanctions in their entirety. He proposed that? Yes, that is my understanding of... Okay, my understanding was dramatically downsized, but not completely stripped. Yeah. And there's different variations of that, but that's more or less the gist of what's being offered, which is not a bad offer on necessarily the surface. I think that that's actually something that in the longest run view of things is something that you want to see as an outcome. If North Korea didn't have nuclear weapons and was never going to have nuclear weapons, there's not really a need for sanctions Uh on them, notwithstanding the human rights issue and some of the other things that you can talk about. But the ending of sanctions and the economic development that one would assume would happen after the end of sanctions, I mean, that kind of creates a different future where you can imagine a more liberal North Korea that starts to look slightly more like South Korea. I cannot imagine that. I just can't. Like my entire, our entire life they've been, you see, this is a problem that I have with, um, you remember the axis of evil Mm -hmm. Iran or in the beautiful worlds, words of Will Ferrell's George Bush, Iran, Iraq, (laughs) and one of those Koreas. Um, Iran, I see as a as a evil and brutal regime, um, but there is you can negotiate with them. There's a there, I, I don't necessarily agree with the Iran deal. That's a whole different topic. But you can at least go to the table. You can there at least you can, you know you know where they're coming from. You know Iraq, we know what happened there. But with North Korea, I just do. I see them as not only an evil and oppressive regime. I don't see them as like living in reality, and they are unpredictable. They're a little. How do I phrase? They're nuts. And so <laughs> I'm. I don't, I'm trying to say that more charismatic, but like I don't see them as a viable as a as anyone who would ever negotiate in good faith. So with the fact that they would sit down with him, I think, is a terrible... Uh, well, he, yeah. that's actually part of the North Korean negotiating strategy from a broad it's part view of Trump's, things. part of Trump's, too. It, it, you're absolutely <laughs> correct. And, you know, uh, if you study international relations at a scientific level and you start looking at how strategy get develops, um, gets developed, um, you know, there's a lot of credit and reliability that comes from being a trustworthy negotiator that does the same move every time you can depend on that and it reduces the apparent amount of risk in the world and so what kim jong-un and his um father and grandfather did was try to interject a 
unpredictable sort of random element in their strategies to make them harder to deal with from the outside, which, I mean, if you look at it from a game theory standpoint, it'd be like a football analogy in that I don't want you to know what play I'm running before I run it and how I design my plays in football and how I do my game strategy for football isn't too dissimilar. And there's well, kind of that's you're it's analogous one formation but, with 40 plays that's not like a that's how you would run it on the football field i don't think the same thing i, I understand the the comparison but i don't think the let's same not thing get would work. too bogged down in this well my, my point was I we don't all think the agree same that it's organized like you, chaos right but what it's i organized chaos what i was saying was i don't think you you go and sit down at the table <laughs> but 40 50 different things could be the outcome i don't really think that that would work in a negotiate Again, I've never worked in international relations, so what the hell do I know? Well, but. it's interesting that you say that because when my undergrad, one of the midterm questions that we had, which was a third of this exam for our game theory class, was we basically, it was, it was simplified for sure, uh-huh. but it was here are the statistics of your football team, your quarterback, your running back, and a couple wide receivers, and now design a strategy based on run, short pass, long pass, of what you're, and it was basically build a football strategy in simplified terms and how you would randomize your strategy to maximize your outcomes, um, which would be gaining the most yards, which would inevitably lead to touchdowns and points. And when you're unpredictable, it makes it, it basically gets the other side to come to you with their best offer because you don't know how they're going to respond, and you just want them to stop playing their game. Okay, so in this analogy, who just punted? Trump or North Korea? <laughs> oh my Within God. that analogy, I w- both of them, but a better analogy that I would words. use... <laughs> the, the, they muffed the punt. Got they it. they yeah. both went three and out, and now it's halftime, and it's a 0-0 score, and no one knows oh why God. we're still watching the game. Okay. Um, Listen, is our goal you just, just don't like, get this. Barry Alvarez and Nick Saban are the two greatest coaches besides Bear Bryant who ever no, I'm lived. I'm just curious if we're intentionally <laughs> trying to alienate our audience. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I'm the host, and I am alienated. <laughs> well, to, to get back to the negotiations themselves, again, from my understanding... Uh, Kim Jong-un wanted to shut down um, his biggest nuclear site in exchange for a loosening of sanctions. And Donald Trump basically said that, well, we know that this isn't your only nuclear site and we need full denuclearization. And then at that point, we can free up the sanctions. Right. And so, I mean, if we're going to really use an analogy, I think a dating analogy would be much more proper. And the president kind of evokes it himself with all these tawdry love letters that Trump and Kim Jong-un have been exchanging. Uh And that is that basically on the second date, Donald Trump said, I know all your secrets and I love you and let's get married right now. And it's like, yeah, at the end of the dating, if it's successful, you get married. That's what the game is. If they give up nuclear weapons, we'll give up all the sanctions. Great. But that's not second date material. And Kim swiped. Uh, again, I'm going to resist doing I'm not the one that went down the trip. No, but okay. <laughs> but so, I will go down. Huh? I mean, the interesting thing about this whole North Korea Hanoi uh, summit was that it seemed like there was an impasse before Trump even got on the plane to go there. It seemed like there was no pre-negotiations done. And, Which like, itself, I'm sorry to interject, no, is okay. really unusual. And you wouldn't have seen it in prior administrations. And 
I'll take us back to 2017 when Trump takes office and Rex Tillerson is the Secretary of State and they cut funding for the State Department by over 30%. They reduced the number of people that they're recruiting for the Foreign Service in the United States and applications to be a diplomat for America dropped by 50% in a heartbeat, which is a trend that's continued and the alienation of the professional foreign policy folks within the State Department. And I think that the centralization of decision-making within the administration, I mean, this is a huge part of, I mean, this is basically the outcome of those policies combined with Trump's supposed flair for the dramatic that he thinks he's going to come in here, strike this big deal and walk out, but it needs to be, more carefully facilitated. There needs to be some agreement beforehand, and maybe there's a couple details here and there that get worked out, but you should have kind of uh, agreement at least on, you should have at least a handshake agreement for what the general principles are going to be before you bring in these foreign, or these top leaders, Trump and Kim Jong-un, to actually meet face-to-face to get signatures on paper, and you didn't see that. But I think that's interesting because Going back to what you previously mentioned about North Korea and being a regime that plays on being unpredictable, and perhaps I would assume that that's one of the reasons why previous administrations have resisted the attempt to reach them out directly as Trump has done, because no matter what is accorded beforehand, they're always going to try to flank you. Yeah, and it's frustrating from the U.S. standpoint, and I mean, one of the obvious things that you have to acknowledge is China's role in this process, being that they're basically the uh, political backer of North Korea, and if the United States and China could both simultaneously agree on one outcome, that outcome would happen really swiftly, and the fact that they're at odds with what North Korea is, represents, and what a unified Korea represents to China, that greatly complicates the process and it makes it hard to triangulate the interests where you're actually negotiating with North Korea one-on-one because it's hard to imagine that Kim Jong-un doesn't pick up the phone and talk to China before he rides the train down to Vietnam to talk with Donald Trump. He doesn't really talk to anybody, but um, I was... What do you make of the... Uh, I'd call, I guess, unholy alliance between China and North Korea because it doesn't seem like their interests are the same except they both tend to be a dictatorship centralized power. I I mean, Xi Jinping is kind of, I guess he was elected to a communist regime, but he did change the rules so that he's now the leader for life. Right. So, but anyway... The, the gist of the thought on that is, is that you see South Korea, right on the border of South Korea with North Korea, you have U.S. soldiers stationed there protecting the relatively liberal capitalist society that is South Korea that's flourished in the post-war years, mm-hmm. even though the war technically is still going on. And China fears that once you open up North Korea, if you were just to evaporate the North Korean regime and you just had direct foreign investment pouring into North Korea, South Korean investment pouring into North Korea, the pushing up of U.S. troops to the border with China is part of what they're seeing. Uh And they see Mm -hmm. this falling under the sphere of U.S. influence. 
at a time when China sees itself as ascendant, asserting itself against Japan, asserting itself against the United States, and expanding into the South China Sea. So it's huh. totally fundamentally against the historic momentum that that regime in China is trying to build for itself in expanding its not only regional influence, but global influence as well, and its ability to project power versus America's ability to project power. And the idea that you have U.S. troops right on your border, I mean, for China, it's kind of this terrifying thing, at least from a propaganda standpoint. And it wouldn't be dissimilar to, I mean, just close your eyes and imagine that, you know, there's Chinese troops just stationed along the Mexican border. Sure. It would totally change the dynamic of the wall conversation for sure. Or even easier to imagine, because it's what reality was, the Soviet Union in Cuba during the 1960s. And that's exactly the fundamental issue that the Chinese regime is looking down on. And not to mention that capitalism... That's an interesting uh, comparison. Okay. And then on top of that, you're going to see a huge swelling of economic growth in North Korea because of all the investment that would naturally come from uh, a unification of the Korean Peninsula. And it's going to be a propaganda piece of look at how great capitalism is versus this communist regime. Look at how many people it's lifted up out of poverty, even though it's something of a rigged game at that point, because you're just the North is just absorbing the previous economic success of South Korea is basically what would happen. But it'd be a foregone conclusion that the everyday lives of the people in North Korea would improve drastically overnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if the people, the lives of the people in North Korea would improve drastically, that would involve in the life of Kim Jong-un decreasing drastically, and I don't think that that's what stops every <laughs> negotiation. Well, that's exactly what it is, and it tar- sort of makes North Korea its own unique animal mm-hmm. to fight, especially with regard to nuclearization. So if you go back to the end of World War II when the Soviet Union first gets the bomb, and the Cold War really kicks off, Uh the thing that prevents the use of nuclear weapons by both sides is this idea of mutually assured destruction, where if you nuke me, I'll nuke you. And in the context of the United States and Soviet Union, and even modern-day Russia, you have these regimes that are, I guess if you want to call the United States regime a regime, uh, you have these greatly supported regimes by the population And if your regime is making the decision to nuke another country, you can assume that that has some sort of broad-based popular backing and vice versa with the Soviet Union and the United States. They're the people that, if we just take the United States, for example, the people that we're trusting with our national security decisions, the people that we're trusting with uh, a button or a finger on the button you know, if they have the intelligence that say we need to make this decision to use a nuclear weapon right now and we're going to use it, I mean, it's been played out in fiction since the 1950s on television. Some of all fears. Exactly. Great movie. And, <clears throat> you know, so the obvious recourse if the Soviet Union were to nuke the United States would be to nuke them back. Same thing with China. And so you still have this mutually assured destruction that exists between these powers. But with North Korea, you have a different situation because you don't have a regime that's there by popular support. You have a regime that's there because it's controlling the military apparatus and holding the population of the country hostage, according to popular theory. And therefore, you could reasonably make the argument where if North Korea nukes Seattle, nukes Tokyo, 
that the response to that wouldn't be a nuclear return because at the end of the day with North Korea, you're not trying to eliminate this political bloc that has okayed a use of a nuclear weapon. You're trying to destroy the people at the top of this regime. You destroy the people at the top of the regime. You can basically free the society and let it integrate with the rest of the Korean peninsula. So that in and of itself is a huge challenge for U.S. policymakers at a national security standpoint because you it's a very reasonable argument that if North Korea strikes first, you don't strike back. I don't know if I, I think the integration of the of North and South Korea is much harder than what you're describing. I, I think that there is some there's a generational element to North Korea thinking they have fundamental differences with South Korea and there would be a I don't know how to compare it to anything else in the they think that they nuked New York City. Like that's a legit. They have museums where they can go where they think that they have decimated America and all. Like that's not when you're leave it, living in a different reality and you're so prideful. Even the, the 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 crazy thing I've heard about North Korea is that they don't know that they're slaves. So that's a whole different level that we're discussing here. I mean, so I don't I'm sure think you... later in this broadcast we'll be talking about the value of fake news <laughs> and how it relates to U.S. policy uh-huh. and but, the electorate. But yeah, you're exactly right. And there is a large amount of brain damage that's been no. inflicted on the North Korean people that's going to take a while to get over. And it's going to be even harsher than the integration of, say, East and West Germany when the wall fell because, mm. I mean, you had the common yeah. culture, sure, but... You also had two industrialized societies that were ready to merge. And I don't know that there's necessarily a overnight readiness to merge. And with the power concentration that exists in North Korea, a great getting them to water down that power of the Kim dynasty is the challenge itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. The, like the, the East. West, East and West was ready to integrate. Right. But I think that also was successful mainly because the fall of the USSR happened simultaneously i think it would have been a different story if there was a fall of the say east germany and ussr was still in a power play Nico, position can you talk into the mic instead yeah sure of looking yeah. at tom Banks. sorry um, <laughs> so yeah I, I think there's no question that the north korean regime is you know orwellian by yeah. all means there is some debate between um not so much whether it's authoritarian but whether it's a failed state because if you look at countries such as somalia or even venezuela today that to me is a definition of a failed state. I mm. see. I wouldn't classify right. Venezuela so, as a failed state. And there's state room yet. for discussion there. But yeah. I, I think I think from the lens that we have to look at this discussion is that North Korea is not even the end game. It's it's a buffer. Yeah. It's it's a playing piece between China and the U.S. And I think China uh, wants to alleviate uh, whatever pressure the United States to put on North Korea and whatever gain one country makes on North Korea, the other one has to worry about. What's your definition of a failed state? Look at Venezuela. That to me is a failed state. Okay. Now, See, I, now, yeah, no, I wouldn't consider look, it just I'm not because saying, there I'm not hasn't been a regime that change North yet. Is prosperous. Yeah, I agree. It, it's being completely sustained by China. Right. If, if China were to just change its foreign policy completely, North Korea would turn into a failed state. I, see, I agree with you that it's a failing state, but I don't think it's a failed state because mm-hmm. there hasn't been a regime change yet. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a chance to you know, turn it around, right. but that's a whole different discussion. I wouldn't even classify North Korea as a failing state. And I'll I'm adopt, in Venezuela, but yeah. Yeah, well, I'll even adopt everything that Nico just said in that 
you know, if you're looking at a failed state from a political science standpoint, what you're looking at is the capacity of the government to do something within society. And North Korea has that ultimate authority within its country. It has the capability to do literally whatever it wants to whoever it wants for whyever it wants. And it's even despite the sanctions, a sustainable regime. And you could even make the argument that the sanctions are themselves sustaining the regime because mm -hmm. they're sustaining the entrenchment of North Korean power. And what the ultimate United States goal is going to be in North Korea is to establish different centers of wealth and different centers of power that even if they're not necessarily in a military conflict sort of way confronting the regime, it would create a multipolarity system where you then have to look at a set of interested actors within North Korea rather than just the Kim Jong-un dynasty. Okay. And that's how, and that's ultimately the circumstance that you're trying to create if you're the United States, regardless of who's president, is to create the situation where you have this multipolar North Korea that then would be more ready to plug itself into South Korea. Uh-huh. And you just don't have that because if you were to just flip a switch tomorrow, that plug-in would look like Kim Jong-un owns all of the infrastructure in North Korea. He would end up probably owning all of the land in North Korea for this integration. And whatever, I mean, it would be like him selling off 49% of what he owns to still have total control over everything but become magnificently wealthy at the same time. And that's yeah. an outcome that the United States is obviously looking to avoid as it goes through this deal, which is part of the reason why Donald Trump, if if in fact he offered to lift all sanctions at once, I mean, on one hand, as Nico's lunch proves, anywhere there's McDonald's, there's America. <laughs> and there is a value of putting McDonald's in Pyongyang. Sure. But at the same time, if Kim Jong-un is the franchise owner of that McDonald's, what are you really doing? Mm -hmm. And it's not a game that plays out in the short term. And if you were to, I mean, just hypothetically, if you were to give Kim Jong-un some sort of subsidiary role in North Korean society, where he's the governor of a massive state or a senator or whatever, I mean, if you diminish his power even that far, you can't guarantee to protect his physical security because of what the regime has represented to North Korean and Korean society throughout the last 50 years and he would be an easy target for assassination relative to what he is now. Yeah. And, I mean, that is literally part of the struggle is that if he has a nuclear weapon, he is a safe human being. And if he does not and he's in a diminished role, he's going to get shot. See, right. I don't think yeah. you, yeah. you well, just oversimplify yeah. the entire regime rests on the, the, the family dynasty. Yeah. There's no I mean, constitution. There's no that is a weird element of this that kind of looms in the background is that like there's really, I guess, not an obvious way to welcome North Korea into the Western world without somehow cutting off the Kim dynasty, you know, and uh, that may just or be a terror. As well, a fact, or or just accepting it, which I don't see happening, but well, that's another option. They, the, uh, the two circles almost seem to not overlap. Right, you know? and I uh, agree. Well, China doesn't really overlap with the Western world, but we've accepted them. So I guess it's because North Korea is considerably weaker than China at this point. Well, there's but, also the whole idea of Korean unification that seems to be what seems to want to... It seems to be the primary push in terms of the international community yeah. as a whole wants to see, 
I mean, it goes back to this idea of linking nationalism with statehood and that the Korean people should be unified into one state. Yeah. And so then you look at what the unification process would be. And, you know, I alluded to it earlier, but it would literally be the evaporation of the North Korean regime because yeah. in the longest term of things, you're not going to tolerate... I mean, if you just merged the two societies together and called it Korea, you'd have two massive states, North Korea and South Korea, yeah. that have to work together for these economic issues where Governor Kim literally owns everything and President, I don't even know who the president of South Korea is, uh, but would be... Si Moon Pai, Si uh, Moon Pai or something like that. But he... What's his name? <laughs> Somebody Google this. I don't know, but isn't, aren't Moon Pies or... <laughs> <laughs> That's culturally insensitive, Jacob. Uh, <laughs> okay, so I have two questions before I we probably never eat McDonald's, and now it's just on record are, that that's are you I eat. are you loving it? Can you <laughs> say into the microphone, "I'm loving it"? It's, it's okay. Uh, it's not their slogan. Um, right. What made you glass half full with these? I, I guess that I can't think of a better way to say this with these negotiations between. Uh, Trump's administration and North Korea, one. And two, I wanted to talk to you, just in case I forget, I wanted to talk to you about um, nuclear weapons and how there's studies that have been done that that show that because of the assured mutual mutually assured destruction have actually brought peace, but that's a different topic, or a different uh, conversation. Let's just do one yeah. question at a time. I just didn't want to forget. Go ahead. Sure. Well, why don't you repose the first question to me? We'll pick up from there. Okay. Um... Favorite kitchen? No. Uh, what? Why were you uh, optimistic in the Trump administration negotiating with South Korea or with North Korea? Was it more of you thought, okay, finally the State Department is coming to the table? Well, the current State Department, as opposed to when prior presidents have sat down with members of the Kim family, or were you? Um, were you optimistic that it was Trump's administration because of how, because I could see how unpredictable Trump's administration is and how unpredictable North Korea is and where there might be a element there that other people wouldn't recognize. Well, I mean, this moment was kind of the convergence of all of Trump's personality and policy up to this point with regard to foreign relations in a way that doesn't Uh directly, you know, anger our allies in Western Europe. And this was an opportunity to demonstrate whether what he has been doing. I never thought about that, and you're spot on. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. T- I, I was hoping that Tom would be a lot dumber, and it would be easier to gang up on him. But what? But I mean, it wasn't that I was optimistic that the State Department was going to swoop in in any way, shape, or form, because. In my analysis of events, the State Department's been eviscerated and sidelined much to what should be the chagrin of every American. You know who was the number one protester of that? Who? Jim Mattis. He said, if they do their job, I don't have to do mine. <laughs> and he's exactly correct in my view of things. Yeah. And um, it was basically Trump stuck in this moment of his own creation where he can either broker this deal and make himself look like the man he says he is in his run as, mm-hmm. as this paradigm-breaking, transformative figure, or he's going to make a clown of himself and fail. 
And either way, it was going to be a moment of the rubber hitting the road. And sure. I thought that that pressure on the president domestically from that standpoint would basically force him to be an intelligent, reasonable actor that would formulate with the help of the people who are left in the State Department, some type of progressive step down deal because you can't, I mean, it's the dating analogy that I made earlier. You can't propose marriage on the second date and you need to have something that looks more like the Iranian nuclear deal where it's yeah. a step down process. And those situations are very different and we can talk about that. But you had this opportunity where uh, President Trump could have really I mean, all he needed to do was make this deal, make it credible, and then he has so much more legitimacy at home. And instead, what happened is he failed to make this deal because of the way he went about handling it, as has been reported in the public press. Okay, yeah. And then he wakes up on Monday morning, and Congressman Nadler wants eighty-one doc or is requesting documents from eighty-one agencies to initiate this widespread corruption. And I think that that would have been, it would have been different either the press coverage of it or the rollout of it had he come back with a major diplomatic win. And instead he comes back in this moment of weakness and the Democrats just clock him as soon as he gets home. Yeah. Uh, I actually saw a lot of op-eds that said uh, he finally did the proper thing when in he, in his entire presidency, he has never walked away. And he finally said, just was like, this isn't working. I'm out and walked away. Yeah. So there, ahead, there Jake, well, there are some sycophants that are going to praise no matter well, like, the, what. Well, I mean, that does. came out of the op-ed I was talking about was David Frum in the Atlantic, who is no Trump fan. I well, mean, Donald well, Trump yeah. has walked away in his uh, negotiations with Democrats previously. And you think back to when he kind of. had a deal lined up for well, border security appropriations and bill. DACA yeah. um, and the deal that was there. It's my understanding, and I don't have notes in front of me, but Trump basically walked away from a potential deal there and kicked that can down the road to where it has resurfaced recently now that the Democrats are in control of Congress. Right. He was and actually he trying up- to get more. So there's something different that he was trying to get more with the Democrats and then with and don't get me wrong, I'm against what he did, but he's against he was trying to get something more with the Democrats. Whereas with Kim Jong un, he had he was giving a lot. Well, and and they said no and it was finally like, Okay, we're out of here. I'm gonna I'm going to interject because I I want to somehow structure this first part of the conversation a little bit more clearly. So or a little bit clearer. Uh, so I think a proper way to do it is to. So I think I think the best way to do it is because we've alluded to the <laughs> Iran deal and that you've expressed that you thought that that was a well negotiated deal. So why don't we go over that the the history and what that uh, what that deal ultimately culminated in? Why you thought that that deal was, you know, a better standard than the way that North Korea has been handled. And so we can almost do a compare contrast thing. And sure. I think that'll be a little bit more educational. Before we jump in here, I wanted to interject um, with the, when it, in, re, in regards, no, because he and I are going to disagree on the Iran deal. And I know we are, uh, but yeah, me too. But right. But we had, let him speak I think we first. have, I think we have different <laughs> feelings. What I wanted to say was I was against the deal after we made it. And tr- I was against Trump pulling out because I actually think it weakens our negotiation strategy. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Because then we're not seen as people who are negotiating in good faith. But go ahead. 
Yeah, yeah and, let's let him explain yeah. the deal first. And I mean, <laughs> that is definitely a big part of it, Richard, is yeah. that, I mean, we need to be able to have some sort of continuity between governments. And the United States government, as we've all learned in constitutional law, is kind of unique in that hands off power to everyone on this rotating definite cycle of four to eight years. Yeah, right. And that if you're going to have a singular actor, so to speak, to speak with, you know, we learned that that's the president, but that person changes, which doesn't necessarily happen in parliamentary democracies where you can be prime minister forever if the parliament keeps putting you in that spot. Sure. Um, yeah. With regard to the Iran deal, yeah. um, you know, there's the obvious difference in between Iran and North Korea that Iran, to public knowledge, doesn't yet have a nuclear weapon, whereas North Korea does. And so the question that you're tackling with Iran isn't how do we deal with this now nuclear power? It's how do we deal with the nation of Iran that has this aspiration, which isn't wholly illegitimate of possessing nuclear weapons someday. And when you look at the industrial, economic and science base of the nation of Iran, you see a country that it's inevitable that the technology will exist, the knowledge will exist in the Republic of Iran to develop a nuclear weapon. Uh-huh. And so to the extent that they don't go down that path is only via Iran's cooperation. And the other side of that is with the continuing progression of technology that, at least in my view, and I know that I'm not alone in this view, which is probably going to be why we differ, is that I think that Iran possessing a nuclear weapon is a historical inevitability. But, but, you know, the same, uh, just alluding to the first point, um, you could say the same thing of, say, Brazil or South Korea. I would. Um, so why this emphasis on Iran? Is there more to play than just the capability of being able to produce a nuclear war, a warhead? Yeah, and there is. and Part of it is the chance of debt to America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rhetorically, that doesn't help at all (laughs) i don't like it i don't like it king of understatements (laughs) but when you look at the situation with north korea and the way that you deal with the north korean regime um you know it's very reminiscent of you know what the soviet union used to be in terms of how you negotiate a nuclear strategy and you basically have to pretend that you're playing the game of mutually assured destruction with kim jong-un so that he doesn't use weapons. And the, the, the point of negotiation with Kim Jong-un is that if you use nuclear weapons, we will come and we will get you. Yeah, but did we do that with, with the Soviet Union? Or didn't we? I was under the impression that we bankrupted them through the arms race. Right, and if... But that wasn't like a negotiation. We just... They bankrupted because we, had, we beat them in the arms race. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a huge contributing factor in the mm-hmm. eventual demise of the Soviet Union. But at the end of the day, the negotiation point was still the same. With Soviet Gorbachev, Union, yeah. if you use nuclear weapons, we will kill all of you. <laughs> it's I a mean, big country. To, it, yeah. It's a great We will strategy. kill the vast majority of you. We were definitely going to go after Siberia last. Just saying. And that's uh, why you have mobile nuclear submarines with nuclear missiles on them because... Yeah. That's your second strike capability so that if America is hit first, 
we have um, a nuclear submarine sitting in the North Sea off of England that will just shower you with nuclear missiles. And so if you're going to strike us first, um, from the standpoint of the Soviet Union, you need to not only strike and knock out our nuclear capabilities, but you need to, on, on land that is, all of the nuclear yeah. silos that right, you think right, of right. in Nebraska, but you also need to find each and every one of our nuclear submarines positioned globally to prevent a nuclear holocaust befalling your own country and retaliation. God, I love this country. Uh, I fucking love this and country. It's, well, it's both ways. I mean, it's <laughs> Russia's playing the exact same game and has been forever, and that's why you saw this nuclear race um, between the United States and the Soviet Union. And I'll just say that it's been the policy position of the United States that communism is doomed to fail in Russia, yeah. not necessarily because there's anything, quote, wrong with communism, although that's something that we can debate endlessly for sure, and we will Please, let's do for that. centuries. <laughs> but if you go back and you read Marx, what Marx was talking about in terms of establishing communism is getting to a place where you have an abundance of resources. Uh -huh. An abundance of resources is necessary for communism to actually function. And when I think of abundant resources, I don't think of Russia. Yeah. And that is a huge part of the reason why communism was always doomed to fail in Russia, why it was doomed to fail through Eastern Europe. And the United States knew that that was going to happen. So we got them into this neat trick that we called the arms race, where we get them to spend resources as a capitalist would even though they don't have a capitalist society because yeah. at the end of the day everything is a structured market and we basically structured markets for all of the inputs of nuclear weapons and we will we were able to outpace them because we have profit incentive with the industrialized military complex the military industrial complex and we have an economic system that supports the distribution of those profits so we weren't simultaneously taking food and money out of people's pockets and tables whereas in russia under communism that's what that trade-off was and ultimately that's what disintegrated the soviet union yeah but i mean i guess the question is is that a flaw with communism or is that a flaw or are you are we shifting the blame onto the fact that we beckoned them into an arms race or it, i mean it i'm of the mind that because it's a redistributive system, it's it's inherently going to take wealth from one and give it to another, no matter what goal they're pursuing. It also fundamentally stops growth, but that's another thing. Yeah. Every political process is a redistribution of wealth. It's how you're going about doing it, and you can redistribute resources and monies in a marketplace, which is the fundamental underpinnings of capitalism. Or in the case of top-down communism, which is really the only form of communism we've seen um, enacted globally, is to direct the flow of resources and cut out the existence of a marketplace. Now, of course, it turns out that the marketplace is more efficient at distributing resources where you have limited resources, which, again, going back to Marx, Marx understood that you need abundant resources in order to get above and beyond the market but for as long as there are limited resources, because we don't have infinite resources, the market is the best way to distribute those resources. So, so I mean, you're not of the mind that the market can create more wealth and 
uh, I mean, it. Oh, absolutely. Seems, I right. mean, that, I mean, They're, that's one of the efficiencies of the market itself is that right. it creates sub markets that can basically speculate on the market itself, and that's what trading commodities futures essentially is. Well, okay. So let me ask this: Do you ever see um, communism working, or is it just inherently always the end goal is always collapse? Or under different circumstances, could it work? I. This is like a more like a theoretical question. Sure, and and I'll just say to that point. I mean, I think that in the foreseeable future, capitalism writ large is the way to go. Um, it's we're reaching a point in time where Marx is actually starting to make some sense, and I'm not going out and positioning myself as a Marxist. I strongly believe in free market capitalism. I believe in a regulated capitalism, but I believe that the market, even under a, quote, communist system, is going to have to exist in some form or another because things will have relative value. And you need to be able to exchange that value based on what people's priorities are, and everyone's going to have different priorities. And so I think that to the extent that communism is capable of functioning in the way that Marx originally thought of it is that we need to get to a point where, um, I mean, it's basically the elimination of labor while still having resources for everyone. And so what you're talking about between communism and capitalism is whether or not you're taking care of all of the people in your society as much as you're going to. And in capitalism, you don't have a market for people with no skills because they don't have skills to sell to the people that have capital to go achieve their means. But at the same time, as automation begins to gain more and more prevalence throughout global economics, we're starting to reach a point where Marx actually doesn't look like a total crackpot. All right, there was so much in there. Um, first of all, you alluded to the fact that there that Marx has a specific vision of communism, and that maybe historically, the way com- communism has been implemented does not reflect that vision. Uh, you said that we've only ever seen top-down communism. It, explain to me if you have any idea how you would see a de- more decentralized version of communism existing. And I, I am leading you down a certain path, I know, because there's no real way to explain this without sounding like egalitarian and, you know, unicorn sunshine. But I, 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 it's a really curious idea when people try to, like, say that this is not the true version of, you know, the no true Scotsman's fallacy. Yeah, and that's why I prefaced so heavily my last remark because I didn't want to say something pro-Marx and then be jumped on for being a communist because I'm not. But <laughs> love what's coming now. It's but I mean just this, in terms of political after the but, yeah. But with regard to political philosophy in the time that Marx was writing in the 1840s, you saw I mean as close as you're going to get to it in terms of the real events of our world, which I'm not, it's, it's hard to speculate on what's possible hypothetically in the future, especially uh-huh. with regards to communism and socialism 
and we're starting to have that debate actually within the United States politics as of the 2016 election for better and worse. But in terms of concrete things that have happened... Well, could, could you just give us a, a short recap of the political environment during that time? What led to, um, what, you know, what we're talking about and how we got to where yeah, we Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when Marx is first writing in the 1840s, I mean, he is a German. Germany doesn't exist. You have Prussia and you have all of the legacy city-states left over from the Holy Roman Empire and a divided Germany amongst the principalities and the Napoleonic invasions, um, you know, had an impact on Germany, but it's still a heavily fragmented state. But after Napoleon invades and declares the French Revolution for France and starts to try to export those ideas, you start to see in Germany this push for German unification and where you used to have a loose collection of city-states that are all different German people, you start to see the Prussians wanting to unite with the Bavarians, wanting to unite with the Schwabians and all of the other subgroups of people in Germany that, I mean, I think you can come up with Saxons are just a list. I mean, the, the list is almost endless. And you have all of these tiny principalities. And so in 1848 and 1849, you start to see these popular revolutions in these city-states, which are basically being run as principalities under the old monarchical system, for lack of a better quick turn of phrase. And you start to see this push for a more egalitarian society. You see the armies of some of these smaller German states coming to the um, aid of the protesters. And you start to see congresses and assemblies, um, most notably in Frankfurt in 1849, that are debating a more an economic policy that's more consistent with exactly what Marx is saying, and at the same time, this growing awareness of wanting to unify the country. Mm -hmm. And what, tragically, in my opinion, ends up being the unifier of Germany is the Prussians are the largest, most powerful German state by far and away. It's not even a close yeah. contest. And there have been an autocratic society for centuries now. And so you see this sort of popular, it's almost, it would be the equivalent of the Arab Spring just planted right in the middle of Central Europe in the 1840s where you see the conservative reaction to that being Prussia going up and just unifying Germany by force through the 1850s through the 70s when they um, declared the Franco-Prussian War. And after they defeat France in that war in 1874, all of Germany is unified and communism is this enemy of the state in our right-wing society. And this is where you start to see Germans moving out of Germany in mass for Ukraine and the United States um, were the biggest, I guess, takers of German people during that time as they left Germany because of this failed communist, in quotes, revolution, even though it wasn't so much a... It was a failed revolution. That's exactly yeah. what it is. And so you see tens and millions of Germans leaving Germany between 1850 and 1900, and then through the next period, you see even more people leaving Germany through that whole time. Okay. And it's basically a result of um, this failed revolution. And there's popular voting, but it's weighted voting so that if you own land, your vote counts for more. And it's kind of this republic society, so to speak, rather than a direct democracy. 
And as all these Germans leave Germany, all these liberal people that feel like they've been displaced because their ideas have failed to gain political traction in the system, um, Germany becomes more conservative, even though the whole time Otto von Bismarck is trying to cater to these people by having workers' insurance, um, national health care. And so there's this push where they're kind of giving some liberal ideas back to the people, but really it's still an autocratic society and it's top down and it's a conservative reaction to what really is the closest thing we've seen to uh, a grand populist communist uprising in the real world. I mean, but it's, it's really as a, as a thought experiment, difficult to envision communism being implemented in a way that isn't top down. I mean, just think about, Marx's main proviso, which is from each according to their ability to each according to their need, that necessarily implies that there is somebody out there assessing your ability and assessing your need and making that judgment call in a not subjective way. I mean, so how do you achieve those ends, which is, I think, you know, the life force that lives at the core of communism, which sounds very egalitarian and and all-inclusive all on the surface, but really I think there might be some deeper insidious logic that reveals itself over time when you try to implement that idea. And I'm not putting, I don't want to put you in the position of, because you've already said you're not a communist, but since we're on the subject, I think this is an interesting discussion. Yeah, I mean, just from a theoretical standpoint, um, if you were to run that type of system, you basically have to be able to tell people no. And in America, we are very antithetical to the idea of telling people no. We encourage people to go follow their dreams, and if they fail, that's the market. Whereas, I mean, even in Europe, which is not communist at all today, although there's yeah. socialist aspects of certain countries, um, you know, they kind of have standardized testing where they direct people into technical school or higher college or whatever. College is free, but at the same time, you don't have the freedom of choice to just go do whatever you want to do. And to the extent that you have an aspiration like that, you need to test into it. And you see a similar program in Japan, and it's just how these countries are choosing to allocate their human resources. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to do it as efficiently as possible. And for the systems that they have set up, they're basically funneling people based on their actual demonstrated merit in standardized test environments. Mm. Whereas in the United States, we use a debt mechanism and we marketize the school system. Yeah, you've just actually posed a really interesting problem for me as a libertarian, because as a libertarian, I'm obviously attracted to ideas of efficiency and allocating resources in a way that is going to produce the greatest net benefit. But also, I mean, the American promise is the promise of adventure and freedom and to pursue whatever maybe, you know, dream people might ridicule on the outside, but you have the freedom to do so. And that's always been the gift of America is that it invites innovation from literally everywhere and it transcends every single aspect of our society and it's what the value of diversity is from just not even a rhetorical standpoint but just from an objective economic standpoint and that's what cities are you bring all of these people together it becomes a marketplace of ideas and whoever on their own has the best idea 
is able to capitalize the best on the market. Mm. Now, um, a big part of that then obviously is, is that your idea has to not only be the best, but be marketable as well. And so those two are linked. And I'm not saying that that's a net negative of America, because I don't know how else you really go about doing this. But there are plenty of great ideas that are generated on a day-to-day basis that have no market value and therefore yeah. are disregarded in this country, whereas in other places they might uh, develop further. Such as what? I mean, I'm just... Uh, just from a strictly academic standpoint, and like when you look at people that are studying philosophy, and I mean, I know that that's like the go-to, you're taking out student loans and there's no market for what you're doing, stop type of thing. Um, you know these ideas don't get explored as fully because there's such a heavy debt burden to continue to explore these ideas. And then it's like, okay, if you major in philosophy, then you have to go to graduate school for more philosophy in order to become marketable. And then at that point, your only marketable skill is to be a philosophy major, which then just teaches more philosophy majors that have to go through the same thing that you just went through. And you're at the peak of your career and, you know, whatever grants exist for your research. Great. But you know, not everyone can work as a, you know, philosopher. Not everyone can just muse and write for a living. And not everyone should. (laughs) Not everyone should. So, you know, for the United States and the way that we run things, we just have the market speak for us. And we don't necessarily need to assign judgment to anything because the market speaks and the market rewards. And if the market rewards, you're therefore successful. The market doesn't generally reward philosophy majors therefore they're not successful and i didn't mean to start a conversation about student debt in america but i mean you're basically land right at that conversation yeah and i i hear you and i also think there's something to there's a fundamental difference between marxism and free market capitalism with the respect of you can um free market capitalism sort of creates an uh a a forced altruism, I guess, where you can't really give someone something, you can't sell someone something unless they want it. So you have to be offering something that they want it. But at the same time, it, uh, it also allows products to enter the market where you might not know that you want it until you've seen it. Like the cell phone, which I don't think would have necessarily come about under a communist regime but I did want to ask you about this. It sounds like everything that you've described with Marxism would require heavy isolationism. Because you wouldn't... It, it would, heavy isolationism with, it, with a singular country because it would require both a uh, really zero-gain uh, immigration system as well as you would have to contain all of the resources within so i don't understand how am i I wrong there well you have sort of this divergence within communism that we've seen play out over the last 40 years or so where the united states was heavily concerned about communism from the end of well i guess from the end of world war ii or world war one but really Mm -hmm. more so world war ii in that yeah. the Soviet Union, because it's communism and operating under the way that you just described, is basically isolating all of these areas from U.S. 
um, economic penetration. And the goal of the United States, since before it was even a country, was how to expand um, our ability to trade with other countries. And mm-hmm. so when you're, a col- when you're a colonized land, okay, we need to throw off the British so that we can trade with the Dutch and the French. But we achieve that. We continue to try and expand our markets. And what you see in the Soviet Union is this country that largely is we have all of the resources and all the people we need. We're closing ourselves off and we're not participating in the global economy, which to the United States is like the most offensive thing that you can say from a foreign policy standpoint. Like, no, we would like to trade with Poland and Lithuania and all like all the rest of the Balkan countries. And that's what we're really all about. Now, the counter to that would be to look at what China has done in the last 20 to 30 years in terms of getting into the World Trade Organization, actively participating in trade, and still trying to distribute those resources along a, using heavy quotes, a communist sort of ideal. But the the problem is, is that until you achieve an abundance of resources everywhere your communist system is open to attack from capitalism and so when you look at what currency is as the thing that you exchange for goods and services and back yeah that if you're a communist country that's totally closed off to the outside world the outside capitalism can tank your economy just through inflating the value of the goods that you need in your society which is what happened in the Soviet Union because we convinced them that they needed nuclear weapons that they were never going to use, got them to pay for it all during this internalized economy, and it sunk the whole system. Okay, they didn't need to import. They just, the stuff that they were manufacturing had to change and they weren't able to review. China is as far as from communism that, you know, I I could think of. I think the reason for their success is mainly due to capitalism and the acceptance of capitalism. Is, Is China totalitarian? Absolutely. I've actually is it uh, communist? It is not. I've always thought that they just really do whatever they want and then call it communism. Right, but but to answer your question about whether isolationism, being isolated would actually make it more functional. I think Uh it would have the opposite effect. And the perfect example is Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge in Cambodia Mm. in the seventies. That was a clear example of a nation being isolated. It was not being intervened by any major powers, and it was a total failure it was a catastrophe vietnam which was another communist country had to come in and invade uh, <laughs> and vietnam they got, itself they got eventually over, they got overrun by vietnam right and vietnam itself eventually also caved to capitalism which we talked about way at the beginning of this uh, podcast yeah and so oh, I also to get back to nuclear weapons I, I, I had asked the question but go ahead well it's it's <clears throat> great but um yeah it, it's just that you need to be able to participate in a market and even where you cut off the market entirely like what happened in the soviet union is that if the actual i mean the government can say that your necktie is thirty dollars but if there's a shortage of neckties to be purchased for thirty dollars you're going to sell your necktie for sixty dollars if someone is willing to pay supply that and demand sure yeah. right and so the principles of supply and demand are what ultimately govern everything. The concept of need is what governs everything. No one yeah. needs philosophy majors. I can have my own philosophy. I can believe whatever nonsense I want to run in my head. I don't need to necessarily pay for that to come in. But then if you look at um, a corporation like Unilever that 
sells soap, shampoo, ice cream. Not that ice cream is a definite need, but for some people it is. You know, they get into these areas where there's a functional everyday need that people will have to pay for. And that's where you see a difference. And, And capitalism rewards that, whereas communism kind of both things have social value, therefore pursue both things to the extent that the overarching bureaucracy which Jake, you kind of mentioned earlier would have to exist because you have to direct the flow of resources, right? Whatever form of government you have just arbitrarily decides that. Now you could conversely have a, in theory, a democratic communist country, which I think is Bernie Sanders ultimate dream scenario for the United States, where this bureaucracy that we refer to, is the government and we're electing our representatives to that bureaucracy and then our elected officials are making these types of determinations in a free transparent democratic way but there's there is absolutely no transparency like a clean market because it's supply and demand what's the real value of the real thing what is the real value of your money what is what is the real value of your service what do Mm -hmm. i need what do i want how much am i willing to pay for what i want versus what i need and that's just not addressed under communism right i mean this ties into like the milton friedman idea that economic freedom is inextricably you know sewn into the fabric of ultimate freedom in liberty in notion like the the idea that you have excludable wealth and labor and that you can choose to allocate that how it is and enter in voluntary transactions is is tied to the just most basic baseline bedrock notions of freedom and even beyond that i mean you we're not at a point in society yet although we're very close but you can't actually monitor me 24 7 unless you assertively and aggressively want to do so now i carry my phone in my pocket yeah they're doing that right now (laughs) Yeah, well, I can turn my phone off and leave it at home and go do whatever I want. And you think I'm at home as long as I'm okay leaving my house without my phone. So we're not there yet, but we are getting damn close to where you can actually have universal and continuous surveillance of every individual just as the state pleases. New York Times is doing something about China tracking people with DNA and they're keeping stockpiles of and records of DNA and whatever, but that's a whole different subject. I did want to get back to, um, I, uh, and this is why I asked earlier, I wanted to ask you about the proliferation of nuclear weapons and how it has in some regard actually brought peace because of, uh, assured mutual, mutually assured destruction. There's been articles written and one of them involves, we also never really talked about what you Liked about the Iran deal. That's a different hold thing. On, hold on, hold on, <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to propose that we take a quick break. Can we do a second it right that after, motion right after this? Richard, you had a question about uh, how proliferation of nuclear weapons has actually caused stability and peace. So there's one argument of the Pax Americana where there have not been many major conflicts between countries since World War II because the world functions better when one country is on top, which was the same with Rome. But another is 
the proliferation of nuclear weapons has led to when you see Pakistan and India, which I don't know why this is not a bigger story, but they're both nuclear powers, I believe. Correct. And that they have been, it's been kind of a hostile relationship for a while, but it has not escalated because they both have nuclear weapons and there's mutually assured destruction. So nuclear weapons have actually led to a standstill between the countries. So do you think that there is a, there's an argument to be made and you mentioned Iran, even if everything in the nuclear deal came about and they deescalated, whatever, they're not going to unlearn what they already learned. So eventually they will be able to build a nuclear weapon. So I guess my question is, where do you think that plays? Just the idea that um, nuclearization kind of has a peace dividend generally? Yeah. Or, okay. <clears throat> I mean, to answer that question, I would go back to the days of the Eisenhower presidency in that the United States and the Soviet Union were the only powers that had <laughs> nuclear weapons while he was president. And uh-huh. Eisenhower's response to any sort of global crisis, and this is a broad overgeneralization, would basically be, and especially with regard to China, and especially with regard to China after we pull out of Korea, although Douglas MacArthur did famously advocate for the nuking of China during the Korean War in the 50s. But even after that, when China would start advancing into places that we didn't feel China necessarily belonged with our view of global international politics, is Eisenhower would say, well, if you do that, we're going to nuke you. And then China would back off because China doesn't want to get kicked in the teeth that bad. And so what you see after um, Eisenhower's presidency is that, you know, you're able to constrain China to an extent. Hold on. Still going? Yeah, we're good. Okay, sorry. And you're able to constrain China to an extent, but at a certain point, they will take something so small that it's not worth the use of a nuclear weapon because the backlash of you nuking China over taking an inch of land is disproportionate. And so what you see with John F. Kennedy is he moves to a more flexible response, which is rather than threatening nuclear annihilation, everything, something doesn't go our way in the world, is that we'll just meet it proportionally. And so that's where you get sucked into Vietnam when John F. Kennedy is president because he doesn't say, yo, communism's invading uh, South Vietnam, we're going to nuke you if this doesn't stop. It's we're going to put um, advisors and military personnel on the ground and just try to meet it flexibly. Same thing with Cuba, at least from the get-go, which ended up being um, Kennedy's own self-created political disaster in the Bay of Pigs, is not that, okay, communism's going to take over Cuba, we're going to nuke Havana. That's stupid. The response to that is, okay, we're going to try and engineer this uh, paramilitary situation that maintains the status quo as we want it to be in the long run, and ultimately that fails, and that failure of John F. Kennedy with the Bay of Pigs is what leads directly to, in my mind, the ensuing nuclear crisis. So, broadly speaking, 
nuclearization has prevented direct conflict between the United States and Cuba. And that's where we start to get in this cat and mouse game where the overarching game between the United States and Soviet Union is this mutually assured self-destruction. But again, back to my example with China and Eisenhower, eventually China can take such a little bit of nothing that you're not going to attack China with nuclear weapons. And you get back to Russia or the United States um, giving support to proxies in the third world that are for their position or for communism or whatever the situation may be. Uh Um, And it's, okay, we're doing this by proxy. You're not going to nuke the Soviet Union because they're giving financial and military aid to some dissident group in some third world that no one in the United States knows about. At best, you're going to do what John F. Kennedy did and confront it proportionally to the extent that you can. And you see in Vietnam where we basically can't adapt to the proxy war situation because we want to respond proportionally. And as they start to um, tune up their action, we tune up our proportional response and then we get sucked into this quagmire. So to the extent that nuclear weapons govern the geopolitical dynamic, yes, because the first strike threat is always going to be so strong because you're not going to stop the reign of nuclear weapons, although Ronald Reagan later in life um, started to try to create missile shields and start thinking in that term um, because it became scientifically feasible, at least on paper, to do so. But to the extent that nuclear weapons don't govern the interaction because they're not going to... No one's going really, no one wants to go to nuclear war over Cuba. No one wants to go to nuclear war over Angola. No one wants to go to nuclear war over Vietnam or Korea. You want to go to nuclear war when you yourself are directly confronted with an existential threat and at no other time. And so once you get outside of this realm where we're playing small ball, you're not going to use a nuclear weapon. And then you see this entire sub game of the nuclear game start to unfold and you see the United States caught flat-footed in the sub-game in Vietnam and then almost ironically you see the Soviet Union caught in the same thing in Afghanistan with their invasion in 79. That I got what I wanted. Right. I um, <laughs> the only follow-up question I have to this is then how do you deal with radicalism? Because it seems that when you're talking about heads of states, um, reasonable minds tend to disagree and yet they all agree that nuclear proliferation like the mutual destruction is not something that you want but what if you get something like al-qaeda or isis um or even you know think back even if hitler had nuclear weapons even before the war started i don't think uh that would have prevented him from you know using them uh in a preemptive strike um he's trying to develop them by the way Right, no, he was. So, yeah. but, but there's no question that he would have used him during the war. What I'm trying to say is, like, say, during Operation Barbarossa, which was the invasion of, of Russia, yeah. there's no question that he would have used them. Sure. Even if they, even, I, this is all hypothetical, even if he knew that Russia had them as well. So, I, how do you deal with this branch? Of, it's a small branch, but um, this is something right. that scholars, like, I've, I've read articles that they generally worry about extremists getting hands on nuclear weapons well people that just throw out the playbook generally exactly you know that's, the, I mean? yeah, right. that's the other the, side the, of the street it, yeah. fight version exactly right right and what you see in that discussion then is that in the framework of asymmetrical warfare where you have extremist groups that aren't tied to a state 
Now, if Nazi Germany uses nuclear weapons, you have definite targets that you can hit. They're a state actor using state organs to further their goals and use nuclear weapons pursuant to those state-oriented goals. But when you get into the realm of Al-Qaeda and terrorist groups potentially having nuclear weapons, you don't necessarily have a definite target to go and counter-strike. So it's kind of what I was alluding to earlier with North Korea in that you know, North Korea is a state. It has definite state goals and definite state actors. But ultimately, your response to them can't really be nuclear because unlike Germany, which is a popularly supported regime despite all of the horrible things it's doing, like you can create um, a reasonable argument for nuking or in the case of what happened in real life, firebombing the great cities of Germany to end the population's will to fight. In North Korea, I mean, at least by what the general Western view is, is that the population doesn't really have that will to fight. And if, they're, if the population, if the society itself isn't the one fighting you, why are you going to punish the civilian population for something that this outside military force is going to do? And so if you look at Afghanistan and the Taliban in 2001 hosting al-Qaeda, and let's say instead of um, 9-11 happening, um, we do the sum of all fears thing where they detonate a small nuclear device in Baltimore, mm -hmm. being that that was the plot of that book and film. You know, you can't just go and nuke Kabul. Like, what does that even do for you from a strategic standpoint? That doesn't kill mm -hmm. anyone that you need dead. That doesn't remove the future threat. And while there might be some sort of cathartic, retaliatory feeling that you get from having a nuclear response for nuclear action, it doesn't create any benefit for you from a strategic standpoint, from a rhetorical standpoint. You know, Osama bin Laden is still hiding in his cave whether Kabul disappears under a mushroom cloud or not. Mm. And so that's been the ultimate challenge of U.S. foreign policy <coughs> in the 21st century is that for a couple of years we were the lone superpower in the world and the ultimate threat to us wasn't from a nuclear Russia, a nuclear China, or even a nuclear North Korea, because those are people that are tied to definite places and definite times. Kim Jong-un is the dictator of North Korea. Outside of North Korea, he's a nobody. I mean, ultimately, without his state institutions behind him, he doesn't really exist. Right, yeah. But the powers, But when you're able to free yourself from a definite time, location, and populace as the way that these extremist groups that are generally in the vernacular considered terrorists in the United States, when they're operating their goals without a state basehood, you don't have a mass target to hit with a nuclear weapon. And whatever they do, your response is going to be disproportional. Your response is going to hit, frankly, the wrong people because you can't hit the right people with a nuclear weapon. Right. So their their status as amorphous organizations really, in a way, insulates them from the it, threat of nuclear retaliation. It, right. There's that aspect of it for sure, but what its more practical result is, is that at the end of the day, the United States likes to say, we're the United States, don't mess with us, or we'll blow you off the map. Mm -hmm. They're not even on the map, 
And so it pushes us back into this John F. Kennedy sort of flexible response where the only way that you can confront these asymmetrical groups is to do so proportionally. Otherwise, you're not actually confronting them at a tactical level, which means you're not achieving your strategic goals, which means that you're just losing in the theater of warfare wherever it may right, be and right, however large the right. theater is. Well, and you lose moral authority too if you strike civilian targets. And right. and the flip side of that too is, you know, a lot of what international a lot of what dictates international law and I'm not an international law specialist and I didn't come here to have a necessarily legal discussion. Sure. Um but a lot of it is based off of what the community of states views and accepts as acceptable behavior and if the united states is going to use a nuclear weapon in response to say a terrorist attack whether that terrorist attack has a nuclear device or not involved you know and then you go back to what is russia going to do when russia sees an opportunity where you know russia was attacked with some type of nuclear device in a similar terrorist attack russia is then going to apply its nuclear power to its situations and so if you take a real-life example of what's happened in Russian history recently with Chechnya, where there was um, a base of um, what the Russian government called terrorists in Chechnya, um, some people might call them freedom fighters, depending on which side of that whole debate that you're on. You know, if you have the Chechens attack you in Moscow with asymmetrical warfare, be it blowing up a, a subway train or, let's say, they detonate a nuclear device somewhere within Russia and Russia detonates a nuclear bomb in Grozny in Chechnya, the biggest city in Chechnya, at, after the United States uses nuclear weapons to respond to a 9-11-like event, all the United States can do if Russia acts similarly is basically shrug and say, yeah, that's how the game works now. Mm. And so once you use nuclear weapons like that, you change the strategic calculation on what using nuclear weapons even is, and you fundamentally alter the math that goes into these decisions. Wow. It almost seems like terminology plays a big role in this. Um, like you mentioned with Chechnya, they're either terrorists or freedom fighters. Um, we, we, we had a similar, there's a similar um, uh, word play going on in you know countries like where I'm from, Colombia. Yeah, you have the FARC. Right. Whether right. whether the uh, left and right wing guerrillas are, you know, terrorists or they're simply a guerrilla fighting. It, you know, the, the word you use plays a lot. You know, 15 years ago, the North Korean regime was referred to as part of the axis of evil. You want to nuke evil out of this world. Uh, so according to you, Tom, what would be the correct terminology in referring to the North Korean regime, the North Korean leader? Uh, because I think that has... Uh, repercussions and consequences moving forward. Sure, and that kind of gets into how you even theoretically view the world. Um, so within this study of international relations, there's multiple schools of thought, um, one of which would be a constructivist school of thought where you know everything that happens within international relations is kind of a social construct between states and people versus um, a realist approach, which, you know, more strictly applies the mathematics of game theory to these international situations to develop your idea of what people are playing for in terms of payoffs from their policies. And 
I personally have always fallen more into the realist school of thought, probably because of my education, which was heavily grounded in figuring out what game theory is and how to apply it in the widest array of situations that you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And so as a realist, when I look at the world, I don't view North Korea as objectively evil or good. I don't necessarily view... I mean, I do view Nazism as evil, for lack of a better word. Jake disagrees with you, but <laughs> <laughs> what, what are what liberals? Want? I'm gonna wait and, for and, that one. And I, I mean liberals in the term of international relations, not not in political liberals. Sure, and to an extent, I mean liberals. Liberalism, tend, that, that, liberalism tends to fall more within a realist view, at least classical liberalism, mm -hmm. because you're basically looking at the market consider myself yeah the dictate yeah. or the market dictates outcomes whatever people are willing to put into the market to get their expected return out of the market it, it's almost like i i almost view the theories of liberalism and i'm sure some scholar could totally take me to school on this but basically that liberalism is kind of realism stripped of the mathematical principles of what's underpinning what's going on in that well i think we're missing a bit of a philosophical component of this if we think about like the Lockean view of natural rights that's that's uh intrinsically part of you know classical liberalism too it is part of classical liberalism but i would view your integration of that set of ideas into international relations as constructivist because what he's talking about is the social construct that has developed through the course of human history and then you're interacting within that social construct to develop international relations whereas the hardest realist we've had in this last century in the United States at least was Henry Kissinger and Henry Kissinger didn't care about history he cared about what is the situation today and how can I manipulate that situation today to get the outcome that I want in the future versus what I know you're expecting to get out of it. All right, but does that preclude the idea of commenting on human rights abuses in the state of North Korea without becoming a constructivist? So, I mean, there's no real realism approach to commenting on human rights abuses? Well, there... And is this not just moral relativism then? I, it, it's moral relativism, but within the view of the United States looking outward... Um, at least on its rhetorical surface, the United States is all people are free, all people are free to pursue whatever they want to do, mm -hmm. um, so on and so forth. And so for us, there's rhetorical value in people being free from um, political persecution or any other human rights violations, because if you can eliminate those types of persecutions, you're more likely to open up a free market society and... Um, as I mentioned earlier, with that always being the overarching goal of the United States, just from a strictly realist standpoint, it's in the actual interest of the United States to create and develop societies abroad that don't commit human rights violations. And I'd further add to that that, um, you know, as I look at the world, whether it's North Korea, Iran, Syria, any other country that you want to name, where you see human rights violations, you see weakness in the, cap the capability of that government. And it's not that the government is 
incapable of extracting these punishments on the population. It's that there's something that's happening within that society that's flawed where the government in this state is trying to exert some undue intimidation in order to keep itself in control of the status quo. And to the extent that that's true, what North Korea is doing to its population, just for the easiest example, is because Kim Jong-un is scared of his population, is how you would read this from the outside, and therefore he's persecuting his population to keep them down to make sure that they're not a threat to his power center. Right. But you, you brought up the idea of opening up like a market. So is it the case, in your opinion, then, that the United States has a vested interest in human rights abuses abroad insofar as we can open up new channels of market or economic activities? Is that always looming in the background? It's always looming in the background, but it's not necessarily the governing principle. For example, if sure. you look at Saudi Arabia, uh -huh. the economy of Saudi Arabia is largely built on the oil industry and um, the dividends that the oil industry mm -hmm. um, builds economically. Now, in order to run an oil well, in order to extract oil and move it to the port and ship it overseas and sell it, it's not a it's not an activity that takes a lot of human resources to do, and especially in our days of growing automation, it takes less and less people to extract oil or any type of raw resource. And then the government of Saudi Arabia in its revenue generation through the oil industries isn't actually dependent on its people at all. And then you create a situation where the people are expendable, and when the people are expendable, they have less individual value and then you can commit human rights violations against this subset of people because you don't need them to run your society. And so that's the issue that you are dealing with um, with the oil state specifically is that there's this lack of need for the people to participate in the economy because a robot, a truck driver you know, whatever you need at the port, which is always a closely guarded piece of infrastructure anyway, mm. you're securing less resources. It's less work to secure those resources. Whereas if you have a service-based economy where you're dependent on a middle class exchanging goods and services with each other um, in a framework where you have an investor class above that kind of enabling that transaction of services to happen, which I think is the happy version of the American story, um, you know, America, its economy is heavily dependent on the people. And where we see political friction stateside is the fact that we're starting to loosen this requirement for the people to be directly involved in economic production, which is largely driven more recently by automation. Mm -hmm. But before the movement towards automation, it was um, driven by offshoring of jobs. All right. It, it sounds like you're saying that a moral compass only works when everybody's playing by the same rules and we're not. Well, well you it, have I to... Think it, I think it, it, it's even what, deeper what, what than he's that, talking though. about North Korea, I'm dumbing it down dramatically, but yeah. Go ahead. Well, it's a specific set of rules, not just the same rules, right? I mean... That's what um, I'm saying. Well, let me can, ask you You can this, be I'm, moral if everyone agrees what moral well, is. Well, morality is a consensus, and so yeah. I can only judge you... For your moral actions if yeah. I have a jury to judge you in well, front of and if that jury doesn't exist because I'm out of touch with what mm -hmm. mainstream moralism is in whatever context you want to talk about it 
I'm not actually able to judge you. I'm just some weirdo that's trolling you on the internet. Okay. Let me ask this. Just, I just want to understand where you're coming from. Morals. Is it something we discover or is it something we invent? It, that's a really interesting question. And it kind of this makes is, me... This is Nico's big thing, actually. <laughs> like, this is... Nico's purpose on this planet is to answer this question he please listen to podcast number episodes uh, eight and nine <laughs> <laughs> uh, um but yeah i mean i'm sorry what was your question again so the question is just is our morals something we discover are they universal are they something fixed in stone or right. is it something that we invent through is, is it a social construct is it something to help us explain or order our society i think right. it's a little bit of both and you know i think back to the early days of law school when we talk about judges finding law traditionally under the, the common law like the legal realist perspective yeah right and they're just exposing what the law is in this situation and the only reason why the law is being exposed in this situation is because the situation arose in the first instance mm -hmm. to say this is how we govern our society and so, you know, in some of like the early tort cases, you're kind of you read the cases and you're like, well, yeah, duh, that guy was negligent and he should pay this person. Right, right, but right. Before it seems that so trial obvious. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it seems obvious to us today. Uh -huh. But if you go back to the 1600s in England, when they're like first trying to actually codify judicial common law in any sense of the meaning of the word. I mean, it really is kind of this discovery of what we all already know to be true. Mm -hmm. And so Professor mm -hmm. Rhodes in our estates class, for example, goes into like, what do you think someone would want to have happen to their estate when they die if you don't get to talk to them? Right. And, you know, the entire room, I mean, that's the whole purpose of that exercise is that the entire room, regardless of your religious or ethnic background, you're just kind of like, yeah, this is how everyone kind of sees it. It stays within its family. And, sure. you know, as an absolute last resort, I guess it goes to the community. And in our case, that would be the state. Um, Disgusting. Dis I know. Disgusting. Resources moving to the state is just an abomination Absolutely. of everything that I've I, ever... I, I'm actually tasting bitter it's in It's not my American. Mouth. <laughs> um, you might want to drink goes, some water. It goes though. against the life, liberty, <laughs> and the 100% monopoly we have on the russet potato. Um so, Tom, you and I'm going to use this opportunity to pivot the conversation because I think that it would be really interesting and more fruitful for the listeners if we disagreed on more. So I'm going to turn the conversation more stateside and make I'm going to disagree with this move, but please proceed. I like I see what he did there and I like it. Go ahead. <laughs> what I did or what he did? He did. Oh. You, you said, said you wanted to disagree. to disagree, and he disagreed. The joke is always funnier when you have to explain it. Continue, Jake. <laughs> That's why procedural jokes are always so great. <laughs> yeah, this one landed perfectly. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> to so, everyone in the room but you. So, and our dozens of listeners out there. All 12 of them. Yeah. We're listening. We degrade our listeners. I love our listeners. We have, I'm one of our listeners. Here's that, the shout out to Dusseldorf. I love our <laughs> listeners. Anyway. Uh, so I want to make the conversation more political philosophy based because I think that that's a really rich area and I want to make it more domestic. So you had brought up this concept of automation and I know that Nico, you had asked us in the group, like in the pre-show group text leading up to this about Andrew Yang and 
his idea of universal basic income. Milton Friedman actually had a pretty inter- like pretty similar idea about uh, a negative income tax. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on that, Tom, and what you know our what our economy might look like moving forward. That's really difficult to assess at this point in time because I think that it's apparent to a lot of people that we're sort of reaching this point in our politics where there's going to be some type of break from what we understand to be the status quo one way or another. And, you know, I've seen projections that automation may cause um, unemployment rates as high as 40% in our lifetime in this country. And, you know, traditionally, when you're looking at a government trying to regulate unemployment, it wants to keep under or unemployment under 5%, and about 2.5% is the magic number that you tend to aim for. Huh. I, I've heard four, but okay. You know, and that all depends on what exactly your economy is trying to do. If you have a more labor-based economy where you're not developing skilled labor, you want more slack in that economy because yeah. it creates more opportunity for people to freely engage in unskilled labor. But at the same time, if you have a society that's based largely on financial services, you want your people in the game and participating. So. As we look forward, we're going to probably want to lower our unemployment rate to the extent that we can for the sake of providing more services. The more people you have employed offering services, not that labor isn't its own service, but it's clearly distinguishable from a financial analyst. Sure. But part of that paradox is that not everyone can work as a financial analyst intellectually or even with the market sustaining that there's just Mm -hmm. such a broad competition for those services and at the same time those services are actually being um, diminished by automation and computer programs that you know think of stock trading for example it used to be that you needed a a pit of floor traders to transact the entire U.S. economy in the stock exchange and now a lot of these transactions are completely automated where we end up seeing these micro crashes in the market that rebound almost immediately because you know there's this panic sell-off in these computer programs recognize it sell into it and then the market sinks to a certain extent and then the programs recognize the opportunity to buy back into the market and then they buy back in at this lower price and so you see these flash crashes or these like micro hundred point dives that happen every once in a while and it's because more than that i mean i was watching because i was really bored at work last week i was just watching the stock ticker and for about like a fourth of a second um the the market crashed like 300 points and then it immediately went back up and that's partly due to this like fiber optic line that we've drawn between the chicago trade mercantile exchange and and, uh, the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, you're right about that, so continue. Yeah, and so obviously the entire world is in competition with ourselves and each other. That's kind of what international capitalism has brought. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, as a society, if we want to look at ourselves as the United States as one society that's trying to push forward kind of together... Um, it's how do we extract the best outcome for our country and then how do we distribute that outcome amongst our population? 
And so it might be that the best thing for our country against the rest of the world is to have an artificial intelligence device of some variety that governs our economic decisions in real time with just a completely objective view. But if you're displacing everyone that would have been doing that job previously, then how do you take care of these people? And we talked about earlier um, sort of how the market rewards, um, you know, the ideas that are needed um, with regard to like a philosophy major. No one needs a philosophy major, but people need toothpaste. And if you have these people that aren't needed or don't have economic value, I think the central question that we have moving forward is whether or not these people are purely expendable or whether or not we're going to try to support them and create some sort of social welfare net, so to speak, in order to make sure that these people don't fall too far. Mm. And, you know... A, a good historical analog to this would be the Irish potato famines, where, as it turns out, if you have access to potatoes and you have access to milk, you can sustain a human person forever on those two ingredients. And so that's basically... I'm proof of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in the 17 and 1800s, um, the country of Ireland just gives everyone potatoes and cows and says, you do your own thing. And you see these giant shifts in population over time because the price of food is, I mean, anyone can just grow potatoes in their backyard. It's not that hard. And as long as you can then get milk somehow... I mean, food is essentially free, and you see an experiment of what happens when everyone is basically on a free ride, and your land can only sustain so many people based off of whatever um, agricultural technology you have available to you. And so they ended up having these tremendous food shortages because the population would expand in an uncontrolled fashion because I can keep supplying for my own, therefore I'll keep expanding until I can't. Not that that's even a conscious decision that anyone's making, but when you're comfortable, I mean, even from a business standpoint, if you're comfortable, you invest into what you're already doing to expand your yeah. growth into the market. And I think that that's just a natural governing principle of, I mean, human nature. And so when you look at it that way, you had these calamitous famines in Ireland throughout time because food was cheap. Anyone could create food and therefore anyone could create and sustain life until you reach this breaking point where it was no longer possible to do so. And that's, I mean, a very simplified version of it because the British crown was also interfering in Irish policies throughout this time. And I don't even have the intellectual capacity right now to go into all of that, but I mean, from just a baseline standpoint, you kind of have this tension in modern times of we have a planet with almost seven, eight billion people on it now, which even 50, 60 years ago, which is in living memory, is almost unfathomable. Mm -hmm. And we're creating these opportunities where we can, where it's possible to sustain this much life, but we start to have questions of, should we should we be looking at population control and what is the relative value of life? Well, you mentioned earlier that liberalism is oversimplified, but it's realism stripped of its mathematical component. Um, so we've seen that happen already with the one-child policy in China uh, because they knew that something like the Irish famine could 
you know, happen again in Chinese soil. Sure. So in, in a totalitarian regime like China, it's some it's a, it's a it's a viable option, but you can't implement that uh, policy in a democratic state like the United States. Well, I I think that an overarching issue globally, and not even necessarily specific to the United States, is that you have too many people for what is on the planet, and it's not so much that you know, 7 billion people is unsustainable and we need to stop right now. Hmm. But with the amount of growth that we're continuing to see and that the human population growth has been exponential since the dawn of time and is only getting increasingly higher on, you know, that imaginary exponential chart as time goes on, like there's going to be a point where the world can't sustain an infinite number of people, which I think is just common sense. Yeah. But then it's like, yeah. what does that breaking point look like? And at the same time, if automation is displacing these people's practical functions in their economies, what are you doing with these people? And, you know, if you want to go down a, a conspiracy rabbit hole, not that we need to do so, but... Now let's do it. Okay. So <laughs> if you're already, if you already have yours and you're in the global 0.1% and you can set yourself up... You any, mean everyone living in America? Nope. I mean, <laughs> even the global... 1% of America yeah. is that you can put yourself wherever you can Wait, create the global 1% of America. What does that mean? Well, I guess it's a conflation of several concepts, but you have, seems the, like it. Yeah. You have the global 1% and okay. I would right, but the venture port. to guess that a good proportion of those people do live in the United States or have us passports. I would say, well, I think vast glo- majority. Yeah. Globally, the global 1%, I think the something like, Five to ten percent of America isn't in that. Our impoverished are still in the global one percent. I mean, right. if only because our population is Anybody? so small. But the income disparities are such that you have a class of people that can that they'll be able to afford to sustain themselves, whatever the world looks like. And maybe it's in a fallout shelter out in the middle of West Virginia uh-huh. or whatever it is. But you can imagine a situation where global warming goes to its full extreme creates these catastrophic disasters globally that decimates the global population in a way that hasn't been seen in the world since maybe the Spanish flu of the early 20th century, but to an extreme far more than that. And if these people in their, whatever they need to live Mm -hmm. are in a situation where everything is automated and they don't need other people in order to sustain themselves, what's really the cost to them of writing out this horror show into what would be their better, brighter future of a depopulated planet for them to move back into. And by way of reference, I'll even ground this in historical times where you had an overpopulated Europe that was basically running as a huge lawless society. And then you introduce the plague into this medieval Europe, decimates the population. All of a sudden, every single human being is valuable just because they're there and they need the labor of these people and thus is born the renaissance are you arguing that global warming could be a human <laughs> correction is that what you just kind of said i did not hear him mention global warming once I, I, oh, you missed uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> I probably missed it you missed it but go ahead i missed it i mean at this point the fact that 
the denial of global warming has been so sustained since it's been first identified. Yeah. And it the the concept really was first identified in the 1890s by a, an academic in Switzerland who noticed carbon in the atmosphere was expanding um, through his study of it. And he didn't understand didn't the concept at the time. Right. And he did say like, oh, my gosh, global warming. But it was like the first... Um, scientific notification of there's an increased carbon in the atmosphere mm -hmm. and you know with Exxon's studies in the 1970s which revealed that they knew that carbon was that basically global warming as we understand it today ExxonMobil had that understanding in the 70s and yet policy has continued down the path that it's gone on I don't think that there's necessarily a popular support for this I don't think that everyone is necessarily conscious of it happening. I don't think everyone wants it to happen. But Wait, in, what's the it in this? We're talking about global warming. Yeah. Global warming just, just running off the rails. Sure that we yeah. Yeah. have our and, pronouns straight. Or, and, and there's folks that, you know, pronouns. yeah, I'll just leave that be. Wait, yeah. Well, let me, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this. So global warming, whether you think it's, you know, real or not, or whether you think it's caused by human action or not, the there's there's sound scientific data showing that there's change in in, in our environment. Well, Correct, right? Sound so changes the lack, warmer, yeah. right? Yeah, but the right the whole debate is whether we're causing it or not. I'm just putting yeah. that aside for for a while. Yeah, that's smart. Uh, so what I'm asking here is, is our lack of action just human error or human weakness or is it a, a weakness of capitalism in the capitalist system i or both <laughs> it, it's the conflation of the two in that i'm sorry passing a <laughs> bottle of whiskey across the table i didn't want Stra everyone to think i was having a stroke no, in the was middle of this literally question the most cumbersome <laughs> hand gestures i've ever seen in my life like do you want the book do you want the no, no, no. no? okay tom you want um, some of this glenfetic yeah, why don't you? Yeah. You've got the nice Tiffany glassware, too. Um, Do you take it with water? No. All right. I should, but I don't. Okay. Um, so I'm sorry, can we restart and have right, right. rephrase so the question? <laughs> just the, the basic premise of capitalism is just constant growth. Mm -hmm. So there's this pressure to grow, right? Right. Taking environmental measures slows that growth. So there's a clear resistance to taking action against, you know, whatever is causing the change in the environment. Is that a side effect of capitalism in itself or is that just a side effect of human nature? I'm going to say I have an interesting you go first. I'm going to say it's both. And I think that capitalism, generally speaking, is the best way to go about doing things in a world of limited resources because it basically harnesses the predatory nature of human beings into an economically useful function. And it basically taps our, um, I guess, competitiveness in order to create a better outcome for ourselves individually. And I think that that can create dividend benefits for other people that can then trade and expand your um, operations. And with regard to this global warming issue, I think that in the short term, um, you know, the activities that are theoretically causing global warming, depending on what you exactly believe on it, just to make an objective statement, 
um, are profitable and they are paying for people's retirements. They're paying for people's vacations. They are paying for people's clothes and spending, which in turn cycle back through the economy. And so if you're looking at how to fix this, you're necessarily looking at a non-capitalist solution because capitalism, at least in my view, kind of is resting on the assumption that you can have infinite growth, but at the same time, capitalism only really is best, in my view, in, um, in an era where you have limited resources, because how do you distribute limited resources? Capitalism is a great mechanism for that, but you have this paradox then where you know you don't have infinite resources and yet you're running this program that almost assumes that you have that capability. And so that's the logical paradox that we need to figure out as a society, both nationally and globally, is that what we're doing over a long enough time horizon isn't sustainable. We can't grow the human population infinitely. We can't expand markets infinitely. There is a real cap that we will hit on this planet in terms of extracting resources, whether it's food, gold, oil, fish from the sea, whatever you want to call it. Like if you had enough demand for salt, you could desalinize the entire ocean. If you had a strong enough economic incentive to do so, there is nothing on this planet that we can't fully extract and distribute through a capitalist mechanism. And what it's actually doing is causing this thing that this phenomena, which is the destruction of the planet, which wasn't foreseen previously. And part of that too, is this idea that God made earth for man to exploit. And then that kind of opens up this entire other door of whether or not the planet really does exist for us to exploit it by divine intervention or whatever you want to call it, or whether it's an objectively finite resource that we need to manage collectively. Yeah, I mean, so to go back to Nico's phraseology of the question, whether the resistance to uh, acknowledging climate change is due to capitalism or human nature. I, I, I almost object to the form of the question because I think that in a lot of ways, capitalism is a reflection of human nature. Mm-hmm. Going back to what Richard said about capitalism almost being a form of uh, forced altruism. But I also object in a lot of ways to the answer you just gave, Tom, and not, you know, in, in a sort of academic way because a lot of the resources that you've listed are obviously ones that we can deplete but i think the beauty of capitalism is that it has the ability to grow markets and to change the fundamental framework through which we view problems so i mean we could just take the example of nuclear energy where we can almost indefinitely create massive amounts of energy from little to no expenditure of energy um so and then there's there's going to be unforeseen resources down the road in the future if we're looking at a very horizon view of problem that we haven't even conceived of yet. So I'm not sure that the that the premise that underpins your answer is exactly right. Maybe parts of it. And I also object to the idea that our resistance to viewing climate change is due in part to because of our retirements in our 401ks and our vacations. I mean, we have to also acknowledge the fact that 
using fossil fuels also in a lot of ways staves off the destruction of human life if we look at developing countries like uganda or rwanda i mean they don't have the ability right now to to harvest clean energy just due to their strictly just their environment i mean if they tried to install solar panels they would be constantly covered in dust so the fact that they can cheaply produce energy from coal or uh or oil burning facilities is is not something to be over understated you know uh, i mean if we were talking about eliminating fossil fuels tomorrow we would be talking essentially about the death of hundreds of millions of people who rely on that very you know essential framework no and i agree with you but you would have to concede that it's it's not sustainable long term i would say that it's the current form and i don't think anybody who is you know let's just make this very concrete we mm -hmm. have the green new deal and we have the people who oppose the green new deal anybody who's in the opposition is not making the case that we can indefinitely burn off fossil fuels sorry what's the green new deal i'm not that's uh alexandria ocasio cortez's oh. new proposal which and jeff markley isn't she a comic book hero <laughs> as of today yes. yeah, yeah 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 comic book hero aoc um wow when nico speaks it really hits you in the, right in the gut huh? yeah. uh, <laughs> well it, it goes back to like what your interpretation of how fragile the environment is and i know that there's a very large movement towards discrediting scientific research these days for a variety of reasons um but there is Wait, what specifically are you referring to let's not speak in generalities here just the idea that you have people that are denying that global climate change is even happening at all and the idea that it, it I don't have necessarily specific examples like right offhand, but you have the debate of the people that are using, hey, it snowed in Washington, D.C. today. There can't possibly be global warming because I can make a snowball in Washington, D.C. Right, in March right. versus the reality of the situation, which is that the global temperature as a whole is rising sure. and you have these facts that are being used for rhetorical value that they don't necessarily have to discredit the idea that global climate change is both a real thing and a real threat to humanity and our global economics. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, but to be fair, there are definitely, okay, I would agree with you that there are definitely people that conflate weather events with climate, but I think that they are actually a small minority to, uh, to not straw man that side of the debate, I would say that people who are climate skeptics are open to the idea that the climate is changing and it's getting warmer, and or however you want to frame it, that there are more extremes. There's going to be colder colds and hotter hots, but they are they're of the mind that the jury is still out as to the extent that that's caused by humans mm -hmm. and the extent to which we can reverse that course. Which is exactly the point I was trying to get to, actually, is that there's a new study out that shows that there is, and I'll just put it in the most objectively bland terms possible, um, that there is a coincidence of Christopher Columbus landing in the New World 
and genociding the indigenous populations for his various colonial reasons, and a global decline in temperature at that time, these are coincident events which has led to the theory that Christopher Columbus and the Spaniards actually killed so many people in the New World that it caused the mini ice age of the early 16th century. And so if you believe... And ice cream sales cause murder. Wait, but so. he, he, he came... Uh, that Christopher Columbus killed so many indigenous Americans that... It caused the second ice age. Correct. So, that makes no sense to me, but... Actually, wow. no, this is all clicking. I get what you're... No. <laughs> no, I'm not the one that did the study. I'm not the one that is advocating, but I'm just saying that this is there's also a, a study that says coffee makes your life longer, and there's also a study that says coffee is the number one cause of heart attacks. Oh, that's what I was saying. I'm just saying. Right, and these false about, equivalencies of yeah, science is part of the issue that I referred to earlier. Ice cream sales earlier. directly correlate with murder, too. Well, you know, everyone commits murder within 24 hours of drinking a glass of water. Should we outlaw water? I don't drink yes. water. I've also never murdered anybody. Your point's proven. Here's my question. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to make a joke about skin texture, but I shouldn't. Go ahead. Do uh, it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. So Please. we can cut it if it lands wrong. If you, well, I'll wait. Go ahead. Make a joke. No, maybe if you drank more water, your skin would look better. Is it? Are you saying I have bad skin, or I'm just <laughs> disgustingly pale? I'm just suggesting that water. An increased intake of water leads to increased skin health. I have and, bad skin. And an increase if, in murder. I'm just saying they might be correlated and your skin could even look more illuminating if you drank more water. You or say, any water there, at all. Any Are you merit, saying I don't look illuminating? But is there any merit to the idea that the aboriginals what they call were putting out a disproportionate amount of carbon emissions? I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm what they call man pretty. I don't mean to be a white supremacist, but... They seem like they admit a lot of... The Shah of Iran once told me that I made him question his judgment on anti-Semitism, and it's because of this face. Let's not let's not get into my water drinking habits. You're the one that brought <laughs> Spe- them up. Wait, speaking of water, I have to piss. Uh, that's not how water works. All right, so what? All right, no, but I did want to. Um, I did want to talk to you about this, and I don't really think Jake's going to care. Uh, what is that? Um, uh, there. Although I do have to go to the same place he's going. All right, well, you can go when he comes back. Um, Do you... I I feel like there is some weird dynamic going on where both sides of the aisle are demonizing the scientific community in order to push their own agendas, and it's what you've described is very clear-cut on the right. Wait, but hold on, Richard. Both sides, so how is the... I'm getting there. Okay. Uh, your what you've said is very clear cut with what the right is doing with global warming. Why is it that you think one that there is an attack on science with that, but there's also when it comes, let's say, vaccines or GMOs or things like that, where the left will say where there's a hysteria and they're just not true. There's no scientific evidence to back up what they're saying, but. I think that people produce scientific studies that generate what are then debated facts, and then people use those facts and attach whatever significance they happen to want to attach to them to further whatever political purpose they have, which is completely disassociated from the study or the fact themselves. And it's that the creation of a fact allows you to tie it to your own rhetorical purposes 
on both sides. I, I think that that's fundamentally correct, and I think that's generally just what politics is in a dem- democratic society. I mentioned GMOs and uh, vaccines. Oh, good. Okay. Um, well, Tom, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tom, appreciate it. Always fun talking Tom, to you. Tom, thank you for being here. And for Dialogue de Novo, I'm Jake Rome. He's Nico Espina. I am, and that's Richard Labovitz. <laughs> Damn it, Nico, if you're going to be my partner, it's pronounced Labovitz. That's, uh, and this uh, is Dialogue de Novo. Until next time. Bum, ba-dum, bum, bum, ba-dum, 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 ba-d